This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinza. Podcasting. It's time for the Decibel Geek Podcast. My name is Aaron Camaro, joined as always by the man with the smooth opinion, Chris Sinzak. How's it going? It's going great, man. I am excited for tonight. This is going to be awesome. We are locked and loaded and fully f- equipped with ammunition. <laughs> loaded for bear. Ready that, to rock. There's enough really bad puns. For uh-huh. not, those aren't even puns. They're just bad references. Oh, yeah. That's even worse. Right. Well, I guess to get get us off of that track yeah. and get us on to business so we can get to the main business here today, we got to start this show. And you know the only way we like to do it is with sweet, sweet iTunes and Facebook reviews. And I've got a great one right here. It comes to us from Facebook, and it comes from Trish Harden. It's five stars. I like that. And it goes a little something like this. This is the absolute best podcast I have heard this year. Excellent choices in music. Keep rocking, guys. Short, sweet, to the point from Trish. That's awesome. Somebody enjoyed our Rockin' with the Ladies episode last week, right? Queens and Noise 3. That was fun. Absolute absolute best. I'll take that. Absolute best. There are none better. Yeah, I like the sound of that. Take that, Mark Marin. <laughs> Bruce Pritchard. You know, who are the other top guys? Like Corolla. Corolla. In your yeah, face, yeah. Corolla. The absolute best. Well, if we want to be like Corolla, we just have to share the same story 3,000 times in a row. Because that's, oh. that's pretty much all he does these days. Okay. Well, we like to do new and exciting, different things every single week. We like to do year in reviews. Yeah. We like to do like we did last week with our friend Scott Smith, Queens and Noise 3. Mm-hmm. We really, really like to do Albums Unleashed. And we're back with one. Yeah, we're going to get to that. But for all the people that really love last week's episode, I know mm-hmm. I was one of them. I know Me you too. were one of them, Chris. That was so much fun to do. Great time had with scott and you know his picks for the queens and noise three episode were spot on and mm-hmm. right on the money a lot of cool stuff yeah, yeah. a lot of stuff i hadn't heard before and he sent us a great cd he gave gave us the tequila mockingbird yeah. he sent it to us we got the the hard copy it's always nice to have the physical product for sure pretty cool so thanks for that and thanks to everybody that shared and retweeted it last week those people are our geeks of the week yeah geeks of the week this week are trevor mcdougall steve wright from the potter than hell podcast joseph capone todd cunningham andrew jacobs kevin williams Derek novak mike grabowski scott smith neil johnson nate atchison aaron baker greg mcglone ian wildly and ralph Vieira from rock and metal combat our enemies <laughs> um just during rock and pod season yes jay sabluski sean cullen wayne cross adam cox mikhail burrell freeform rock podcast mark alden taylor nighthawk the Black Jew. All right. Okay. Sonny Pooney, Jimmy Starr, uh, Lady Lake PR, who will be working with the Expo this year. More about the Expo as we get into the show. Um, Christopher Stokes, J.J. Mack, Adam Cox, Jeff Mendenhall, Ernesto Aguiar, and, of course, the Mooger Fuger. Mooger Fuger, yep. We've got to round it out right. Thanks to everybody that shared and retweeted last week's Queens and Noise 3 episode with Scott Smith. Hey, if you guys want to do like Scott did and get in on the action, yeah. all you got to do is hit us up at Rock and Pod Expo at GoFundMe.com slash Rock the Letter N Pod 2018. What a team we there are. There will be a link in the show notes on your iPod, on the computer, or just 
do a Google search and put Rockin' Pod Expo 2018. Yeah, pick your subject. Join us on the Decibel Geek Podcast. Yeah, we got more of those coming up. We're ready to go. Absolutely. All right. So how about today, man? Yeah, this is uh, it's exciting because uh, a listener from the UK named Chris Hoskin is responsible for help helping us get together with this guest. And uh, we have Mick Sweet on the show today. Uh, of course, from the Bullet Boys, King Cobra, a lot of stuff. But uh, one of Aaron and I's favorite debut albums ever is uh, the, the, the Bullet Boys debut from t- 1988, 30 years ago this year. I feel like I was in my prime when this album came out. I remember buying it at the record store. Yeah, look and, at us uh, now. And it was, uh, it was cool because Chris got us in touch with Mick, and Mick got right back to me and just said, Love it. Sounds like fun. Let's do it. Cool. And then uh, we have a cherry on top. Yeah, uh, man. You When you sent me this message, yeah. I thought, Chris, you beautiful bastard. <laughs> you freaking genius. Well, I, I start doing my research on it, and then I'm like, oh, Toby Wright was one of the engineers on this record. Uh-huh. So I just text Toby, hey, haven't talked to you in a while. Hope you're doing well. And uh, just letting you know we're going to be doing an uh, interview with Mick Sweeta about the Bullet Boys' first album, Any Memories, and he just said yes. And I said, well, would you like to come over and, and join us on the call? And then he was like, well, is Mick in town? I said, no, but we have a microphone for you if you want to come. Yeah. And then he was like, yeah, sounds fun. So Sweet. So you're going to hear from an engineer and the guitar player and uh, hear these guys catch up and, uh, of course, go you know go through all the songs and yeah. the circumstances and all the stuff you guys love. And we you, guys, know, you guys remember how well that worked out when we did it with Rachel Bolin and yeah. Michael Wagner. So I expect it to be just as awesome today. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we hope you guys uh, enjoy this. We love doing these Albums Unleashed episodes because they're so much fun for us, too. And uh, let's get to it. All right, here we go. Albums Unleashed, the Bullet Boys debut album. out of the bag i have a a bit of a surprise for you because uh this person wanted to keep it a surprise but they a voice from your past is also with us (laughs) make it sound funny Uh (laughs) Uh hi mick who is this how's it going brother it's good who am i talking to talking to toby wright oh toby my boy i just uh (laughs) i just mentioned you by name because uh way back when we worked together i never realized that you worked with chris whitley who ended up becoming one of my favorite artists oh so, that's awesome yeah one of my faves your as well. fame has o- yeah your fame has only grown around here excellent i'm here to uh induce a laugh or two <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm sure you will you'll probably you'll probably correct some things too i don't know you know there's there's been a lot of beers that have gone down the tube since we did that record so uh, you'll probably have to correct some things oh no worries yeah, Chris was just telling us that coming up in September is the 30-year anniversary of this album. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah, yeah right. Does it feel like yesterday? I'm that old. <laughs> oh, yeah. We all are, bro. Oh, yeah. It feels like another lifetime, you know? Yeah, Toby lives here in town, and, and I was I start doing my research for the album, and then I'm like, oh, there's Toby Wright's name. So I text him, and I'm like, do you have memories of this record? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, do you want to come over and, and talk about it with us? And he was like, yeah, keep it as a surprise for Mick. So I was glad to uh, reconnect cool. you two guys. Like, it's, has it been that long We're, since you've talked to each other? Pretty much, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so the basic idea, as I told you in the email, is we focus on one album and you know the circumstances leading up to it, how it got made, and uh, and then go song by song memories just that you have about each song. 
obviously this band getting formed was an interesting situation alone because it comes off the tail end of the final lineup of King Cobra at the time. And it's kind of similarity to how the Vinnie Vincent invasion thing happened where most of the band leaves to start another band. Just in, in a quick nutshell, how did it happen to where basically you guys basically took off away from, from Carmine? Were you the first one to go? Well, it's, I'm the wrong person to do anything in a nutshell, so you might want to interrupt and well, stop me if I get too long-winded. It's all good. But, uh, what, yeah, what happened is, um, you know, King Cobra was sort of floundering at the time, and I could tell it was not going the right way because Carmine kept reaching out to all these other people, right, for help. And I was presenting songs, and, and they were kind of being superseded by, you know, guys like Gene Simmons and whoever else he was trying to contact in order to, sort of revive the brand. So I just basically gave my notice. I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go start my own band or find something else to do. And, uh, I approached Mark and Lonnie, but they were very reticent to leave. I mean, this was their big break, right? And this was their big band and they, they didn't want to go back and, and try to start something from scratch. So I just said, all right, well, that's a luck. And I'll, uh, I'll see you guys on the flip side. And I started auditioning players Eventually, I, I guess they came around and, and we connected and, and agreed to uh, start playing. And in fact, Dave, the guitar player in King Cobra, came along with us. And I think he spent a week at rehearsals and uh, it wasn't really for him, you know, and he had other things going on personally. So uh, it ended up being um, the four of us. Mark had a drummer in mind, but he didn't work out. And uh, that turned into kind of a cluster. So we ended up getting Jimmy and everything sort of took off from there. So uh, before we get into the songs though, I mean, were any of the songs on this, on this bullet boys album already in the can for King Cobra and they just got carried over or was it all original? I brought kiss and kitty to King Cobra and we actually, there was a version of it somewhere. I don't even know if I have a copy of it. We ended up streamlining it for uh, bullet boys. Mm. So that was probably one of the first songs we started playing. Okay. And who came up with the name bullet boys? Uh, well, we, uh, actually the original drummer, I hate to call him the original drummer cause he, he was kind of a screw up, but he, uh, he brought it up and we liked it and just sort of ran with it and had a good ring to it. Yeah. But you'll hear, you know, you'll hear different stories from Mark. I mean, I, I heard an interview the other day that he, he was, uh, let's just say he was revising things to suit his needs. So, uh, uh-huh. Yeah, well, you're, you're going to hear the truth from me, okay. <laughs> better or may, worse. may not be as exciting, but it's the truth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, gotcha. so much for color. Sure. Right. So so you guys formed the band and, you know, obviously get your songs together. So how did the, the record deal and the connection to Ted Templeman come about? Well, at one point I uh, saw a guy from our merchandising company, King Cobra's merchandising company. I saw him on the strip one night and he said, hey, man, I'm managing. And, uh, you know, if you get something together, I'd love to hear it. So I gave him a call when we had a few songs together and he came down and saw the band and uh, was immediately, uh, let's say, stricken with us. And uh, so he really helped us to get organized and he reached out to a bunch of different labels and at one point we were rehearsing in LA and he had scheduled a bunch of people to come down. So a guy from Geffen came down and, um, some, some other labels. And, uh, I was really excited that, uh, Ted's sister, Roberta was going to come down because I, you know, I've just always been drawn to Warner brothers 
records for some reason. I think it was the palm trees on the old vinyl label. Yeah. <laughs> but we uh, we ultimately got Ted down there, and he sat and listened to our songs. He said, oh, let's just play. I'll raise my hand if I don't want to hear anymore. And uh, as the old story goes, he never raised his hand. So, nice. you know, we went through everything, and he said, cool, let's make a record, guys. Awesome. And uh, that was really exciting. But the other unknown story is that they were trying to revitalize reprise. So they were making a push for us to sign with Reprise at that time, which may or may not have been better because obviously we probably would have gotten a little more attention. But, you know, again, I, I just really wanted to stick with Warner Brothers. I felt that that would be a better fit for us, and turned out it was. Yeah. And, uh, well, Toby, what's your first memory of the, of these this, this group of guys coming in to record? Walking in the door of the studio, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. You know, just <laughs> bringing in the drums and... You know, it was pretty much another session at that point in time because it was at one-on-one studios. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, it was, I was the only guy there, so the bands just kept on coming through. So yeah. at that point, it was just, you know, they were just another band. And then all of a sudden, here comes Ted and Jeff and the boys. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> you got something special here, guys. What the hell? <laughs> right, right on. Well, and I think Toby hadn't, Toby hadn't. You guys just sort of finished up with uh, Metallica or something at that point. Yeah, I think we had just finished the Injustice for All record because yours came out just slightly after right. yours did. Because uh, their 30th anniversary of Injustice is coming up in May, I think. Yeah. Um, and you know, yours is what September? September. Or yep. So. Yeah, just I guess right after. Yeah, that, dude. yeah, I, th- I could just feel that the ghost of that record was just sort of hovering around all the time. It's funny, it's like looking at the, all the tapes and everything. Right, exactly. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, we added a lot of two inch on on that record. Yeah, so it's a pleasure to you know hear people play a song all the way through at that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love it. But you know, it's so funny when you guys put. Uh, I think he put a reel on at one point just to show us. It looked like a freaking strobe light with all the edits. It yeah, it was a, hilarious. <laughs> as it went through, yeah, the, uh, totally. through the heads and stuff. <laughs> wow. Yeah. There were there was a lot of edits. It was a an interesting and mm. kick ass record. Yeah. But, you know. So you're saying that, oh, yeah, that Jim, amazing, right? you're saying Jimmy DeAnda didn't require three months of drum tracking like no, Lars did? No. Not at <laughs> well, all. Well, the, the drum tracking took a while. I mean, Jimmy was pretty green at the time, you know? I mean, yep. he's never done anything like that. And Ted is uh, is very rhythm-focused, and, and he sort of wanted to make his mark on, on some of our songs. So, yeah, Jimmy got thrown a lot of curveballs and oh, yeah. ended up having to shift gears a lot. So, yeah, I would say the first month and a half we probably spent mostly getting drum takes you know and at that point the guitar was almost incidental i mean like if i didn't get it on one of those takes punching in required you know some serious (laughs) bobbling like oh my god please guys it's a freaking it's a clam let me fix it please (laughs) (laughs) did you guys do pre-production with ted yeah, but I barely remember it. I think for the most part we had, because like I said, we were rehearsing every day. We didn't, None of us did anything else. We just got together and played all the time. So I think a lot of it was done. We probably went to, uh, I wish I could remember that. I, I bet you everybody in the band remembers it but me. But yeah, we, I'm sure we ran through some stuff for a week and then, uh, you know, did a lot of it in the studio, which right. again, you know, I love as much as I love Ted, he's a superstar producer. So for him to sit there and completely revamp a song or a drum track in the studio at freaking $2,000 a day was nothing, you right. know? And meanwhile, we're just going like, Oh my God, this is going to be so expensive. And 
sure enough, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not cheap to work with Ted Templeman, I'm oh. sure. Oh, no, no. If he wants to take a day off or a week off, just kind of go in and, as he used to say, we'll pre-mix. What? <laughs> what the fuck is pre-mix? I remember how about, that, how, yeah. how about if we get the freaking song recorded first? <laughs> or you say, how about I get prepaid? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, there you go. All right. Well, I, I and I have to. I, I want to bring this up because obviously the Ted, you got Ted Templeman producing. It's on Warner Brothers. Your singer is a thin dude with long blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Van Halen thing get got brought up a lot back then. What I mean, how conscious of an effort was it to kind of market you guys like the next Van Halen? Well, I don't know that there was any marketing ploy. I know it. You know, we were aware of it, or at least I was aware of it in the studio. So even though I, I used to do some hammer-on stuff, I kind of mixed it all mm-hmm. and kept it to a bare minimum. It kept it more along the lines of Billy Gibbons. But to no avail. I mean, everybody just freaking bounced all over that thing regardless. So it didn't really make any difference. You know, I, I did my best. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it never bothered me. And I, I always figured if they were if they were just throwing that out there, they weren't really listening you know because as a music fan myself mm-hmm. and granted maybe not the most objective one to uh, make this call but i i get the whole Tureen thing but if you listen to the music i i don't really see that many similarities to be honest no. i mean certainly the energy and all the other peripheral things you know warner brothers ted mm-hmm. david lee rodriguez as i heard one person say <laughs> uh, wow you know all that stuff sure adds up but you know <laughs> well, whatever i mean yeah. i you know if i was going to get bummed out at everything a critic said i'd be gushing crimson red out of my wrist every freaking day right right but i suppose back then you know it's it's good for the like a magazine like metal edge or hit parader to say this is the next van halen because that's going to draw people in you know and put more eyes on the band more eyes on the magazine so you know they take what you are and just push it as that it benefits them but then like you say you know the music there's some songs on there i hear that you know could be songs like van halen could cover that and it would sound good but there's a lot of stuff on there too that it's like no this ain't nothing like van halen yeah i mean a groove like shoot the preacher down i mean that's just fun to play and and they do it pretty well you know again like you said it's any any press is good press at that juncture and if people gave it an honest listen and decided that it was a secondary van halen then they're cool at least you listened i appreciate it you know but Mm -hmm. more often than not i think people appreciated us for you know what we were was just something a little different yeah well i mean that's better than something maybe even i mean i've heard people say this too i've heard people say that you know van halen isn't even like that anymore at least you guys are now so that's probably the best compliment i ever got yeah, it's more. It was it's much more similar to Roth era Van Halen. Certainly not the Sammy stuff. No way. Um, which I also mentioned. Of course, right. there's one thing that definitely sets this album apart from stuff that came out in this this era. There's no power ballads on this album yeah. at all, which was a standard. Yeah, I mean, at that point, uh, it wasn't even a consideration. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly as we ended up promoting the record and, and seeing what was going on around us. You know, there's always a little like, wow, those guys are really selling a lot of records and they're getting huge and it's all that ballad, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, we never really were at the point of regret. Certainly, there came a point later on in our career where when it was in jeopardy that releasing a ballad was something that felt like a much better idea at that point. 
But I mean, we were pretty rebellious and uh, wanted to make sure that we didn't fall in line with, you know, lockstep with everything else that was going on back then. And, and mm-hmm. certainly we didn't want to be perceived as some of those bands were. Mm-hmm. So Warner Brothers never came to you guys and said, you know, we need that big hit ballad. Uh, no, I can definitely say they did not do that. However, you know, by the time the third record came out and it looked like that would be the last one, you know, that was a decision we made on ourselves. I mean, even at that point, they said, look, you guys can release whatever song you want. I mean, Warner Brothers was cool to us from start to finish and right. letting us decide what we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, example number one is releasing THC Groove. I mean, that was that was like sticking a knife in your heart, you know, to release that song as a single. Yeah. It freaking <laughs> pretty much kill that album right from the beginning. But, great song. you know, we wanted to take a chance. And, and we, again, we wanted to try to buck the system as much as we could mm-hmm. in the hopes that it would, you know, go the other way and it was because it was different because it was you know repulsive to most program directors it would be huge and you know we lost that gamble but um yeah warner brothers allowed us to you know step on our own feet the whole time cool that is cool (laughs) well um you know you've got 10 songs on this record uh i gotta ask was there is i mean is this everything you came into the studio with or were there several songs that didn't make the cut I think we came into the studio with like 24 songs. Wow. Some of those, I know I know we were playing Thrill That Kills at that point, which is on the second record. Not much else, though. I think most of those songs went went away, and we wrote pretty much everything else new for the second record. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we had, you know, we had a wealth of material because that's, that's really all we did. We didn't play that many gigs. I mean, by the time we started recording the record, I think we maybe had six local gigs under our belt. Wow. And that was just something that we decided we were going to do, just to kind of hone our craft and, mm-hmm. and uh, make it as, as strong as we possibly could. And I, ultimately, I think that's what paid off for us as opposed to just wasting our time, you know, playing on the strip and not being as good as we could. Yeah. Was there? Uh, well, it, w- I'm, I'm assuming Ted made the final call as far as you know what songs made it onto the record. Was there anything that was a battle between you and him about like stuff that you thought should have made it that didn't? No, not really. I think we were in uh, in a lot of agreement there. I know there's a story we'll probably get to about uh, for the love of money, mm-hmm. but yeah, for the most part, you know, we were sort of enamored with Ted anyway to begin with and and he just he got us you know for the most part so we really didn't have any differences there at all yeah Toby will you verify that uh, it was a pretty easy process making this one it was amazing actually Uh, especially Ed you know, as we previously mentioned after what I'd just been through. Mm-hmm. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, cause that was like a nine month record or something. So, you know, this came in and it was very fresh yeah, and very welcome. You know what I mean? And, and Ted, you know, kicked ass. He's a superstar. Yeah. You know, and the band was just amazing. Yeah. I always, you know, uh, frankly, I was horrified when I heard the playback because I'm, I have a tendency back then to to want to sort of overproduce. I mean, like everybody else, right? I want to double all my guitars. I want to play solos over the the vamps of everything, and I, I want to delay here, and I want this there, and and you know, I was playing things with all these particular moments in mind. And so, when they said, "Look, we don't want any of you guys here," you know, if, if you're here, then everybody else is going to want to be here. We don't want that. So during the mixes, you guys just stay away. I said, okay, great. Here's my list of notes. 
please pay attention to them, <laughs> and uh, this will be great. I mean, you know, I have specific things that I plan to do with the guitars. Not fucking one of them did they pay attention to. <laughs> so I'm listening to the playback, and I like in F sharp nine, for example. You know, I do this thing at the end of the solo where it's like this quarter note. You know, wham, 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 wham. And what I'm hearing is like a Brian made delay on there. You know, where it produces a chord at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Nothing. There's nothing there. Just those freaking notes. And I, I'm just like in the back of the room with my arms folded, just going, "Oh my god, this is a disaster." And sure enough, you know, I was wrong. People loved it. No one ever said a thing about where's the delays on there, man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I came to grips with it, you know, listening to it in stores. And I, I grew to appreciate Ted and the sort of simplicity he brought. And I think more than anything, I get I got from him that, you know, the some of the mistakes you make are like beautiful mistakes and you have to keep them, you know, and, and they don't sound like mistakes when the record is. 30 years old. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I learned that it, it was painful at the time, but hopefully Toby is being truthful when he says it was a refreshing experience because it was frightening for me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, yeah. Well, what was to this too? We got, we rented an, uh, like an old Marshall head, right? So we didn't use, we didn't use any of my stuff. And, and uh, my, my sound was pretty, you know, pretty grungy and dirty at the time. So when they plucked me into this Marshall, and everybody went, whoa, whoa, there it is, there it is. It's like the fucking cleanest sound I'd ever played with. It's like <laughs> ballad sound. And I'm, I'm like trying to play leads on this and doing all my parts. And everybody's like, oh, my God, no, it sounds great. Keep it, keep it. But meanwhile, I'm out there struggling, you know, and not like fighting the tone. So, you know, that there was that, too. Wow. I, I remember some of those conversations and, and you being a bit frustrated with it. Yeah. And on the second record, I mean, I just... I said, screw it, I'm going to turn it up, and I did. And, you know, that tone sounds good, too, but it is demonstrably, you know, dirtier and creamier. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, that's, it was uh, it was interesting. Well, and, and you mostly work in production now yourself, so, I mean, uh, uh, and I guess in hindsight, you probably you have a whole different perspective on it now than you did then. Yeah, I do. I mean, I still have a tendency to overproduce. I still have a tendency to, you know, to pure orchestrations rather than just one guitar that carries the whole tune. But I have that lesson that Ted taught me and it's, you know, it's come in handy. Yeah. I have many as well. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Just producer, you know, production wise, it's, it's crazy what, you know, you can learn from people like that. Yeah. You know, and just one session even. Yeah. You know, and I got to sit in on many of them, which was amazing. Yeah. But, but uh, for example, what you guys did on those, on Chris's records, you know, that's that's what I hear. You know, I hear like feedback coming in and just, you know, like the musicality of it all is just so beautiful to me. Exactly. Um, our our record our record was spare and Spartan by comparison, you know. But that was a different kind of record, though, right? You know, like Chris. Oh yeah, totally. Like Dean of Ecstasy, and you know, that's just unleashed mayhem pretty much oh, and oh, or beautiful gathered mayhem, mayhem oh or God. controlled mayhem or something like that mm. but you know just it's amazing mayhem. I, yeah that's a that's a good term but um i think you know your record is a lot more stark and huge yeah, yeah definitely well, you know, huge. Yeah. the drums and you know just the whole production of it was completely different than a than a chris thing but i get what you're saying about yeah, the guitars totally. and the harmonics and you know all that all the all the all the musicality mm-hmm. of it as well, you know. 
I think what, yeah. what I mean, I was, I bought this album when it was brand new and I was oh. almost 12 when I bought it. And, uh, well, sorry to make <laughs> you feel old. Um, and, uh, but like to me, it, it, it accomplished what it was, which means whenever I listen to this album, I imagine I'm in an arena with 20,000 people and I'm getting my ears completely blown off. Yeah. And that, cause I mean, that's, it sounds like a, a live arena concert to me when I listen to it. Exactly. Yeah, mission accomplished. And and I'll tell you exactly. this that you know the fact that we ended up doing all those drum takes really helped me, you know, because every take got better and uh you know even though I would certainly have, you know, taken a different approach to recording the guitars, it was beneficial because I, I as I got more comfortable, I could take a few more chances and you know, as as we ended up touring on that record that's when it sort of came together for me. I, I finally, over the course of months, you know, started playing that I would have done in the studio had we done more pre-production or had we actually played the songs. And like most bands, right, they're playing these songs for freaking 10 years before they record their first record. Right, you exactly. Know? So it was a little different for me, but, you know, I made friends with it eventually. Yeah. <laughs> well, and well, describe the, the chemistry of the band as you guys go in to record this, because like this is the the big break and everything. Your own band, you're on a major label. you got a huge producer. Um, was it a good camaraderie at that point? This band was always sort of on the edge. In fact, there's a story that, you know, once the record was done, Warner Brothers said, well, that's great. We'll, we'll release it in like nine months. And my manager was like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. These guys will never make it that far. There will be no band in like two months. Wow. So wow. we've got to do something. We've got to get these guys out. I mean, it was there was acrimony over a bunch of different things. I know I, I got sort of pushed into doing like a 25% split on all the writing. I, I mean, I ended up bringing in like four songs. And so, you know, that wasn't necessarily a good deal for me. And I ended up doing a lot of the work on the other stuff. So, you know, I kind of had to put some stuff in a box and put it on a shelf. But ultimately, we were just happy to be in there making a record and doing what we wanted to do. And it seemed to be coming out pretty well. Mm-hmm. That's probably how I should say it. It was as good as it got for us, you know, doing that record. Right. Was it? Oh, everybody's concentrated, focused. They know the mission ahead. They know what they got to do. And now all of a sudden there you are in the studio with Ted Templeman. You know, there's really no time for all that other kind of side stuff, I would imagine, because it's full concentration on making an album. Yeah. And to be honest with you, you know, there wasn't a lot of time that, that Ted took off. I remember somebody saying, our manager coming in and going, uh, well, Ted's not going to make it again today. He was on his way in, but he saw a black helicopter over his car. And so he turned around and went home. What? And so with kind of stuff, stuff like that going on, wow. you know, the focus really sort of shifted from us to like, holy fuck, are we ever going to finish this record? And when we do, how much is it going to cost? Yeah. So there was a lot of that, too. A black helicopter. That's crazy. Oh, so it, was, it was a joke for months. Holy fuck. Put your tent any excuse will do, I guess. <laughs> Oh, yeah. The more oh, outrageous, yeah. the better. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're going to have an excuse, make it big, right? That's right. Like, right. You know, go home. No, you did, you did get up late. A freaking giant ogre threw you out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Abducted by aliens again. Right. Yeah, there you go. Again. <laughs> <laughs> was the studio atmosphere like a party, or was it straight-up business all the time? No, it had to be straight-up business because, you know, like I – just saying by the time Ted got there to record, we had to be on our game and we had to get something done, Yeah, you know? So 
even though we had a good time after hours, um, and, you know, we didn't necessarily work really long days. I mean, to the superstar producer who's done, he's already done it. He doesn't have to stay in there for freaking 16 hours straight and, and belt it out. If he feels like going home, he goes home. So, like I said, we had to take advantage of it every minute he was there because, you know, he didn't really trust me to run the sessions and uh, there wasn't much we could do if he wasn't there. So it kind of sucked in that regard. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, let's, uh, if it's okay with you, let's, let's go track by track and just start, start with the first one. Um, Hard as a Rock, was it known pretty early that this was going to lead the album off? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I don't think we really had any ideas about uh, how it was going to be sequenced. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, that's a tune that came about in my little apartment in Hollywood and uh, seemed to come together pretty quickly. You know, it seems to have uh, made its mark. that went out to the local station here, KNAC, a local hard rock station, and seemed to do really well on there once the album came out. Yeah, whoever sequenced it, that's a great way to kick off this album. That song's got a, just a hell of a punch to it and a, a great way to kick off an album like this. Yeah, I think it kind of stood out, out to, to Ted. You know, to me, I, I didn't really care. I mean, I, I didn't really go down the rabbit hole of sequencing because it, could, it, it kind of drove me nuts, you know. I didn't. Like, do you start out heavy? Do you start out a little lighter? Do you build these, <laughs> you know, these blow the head off right at the beginning? I don't know. It's like, I just, I was happy Ted did it. Yeah. yeah. It was easier if he makes the decision than you guys, I'm sure. And certainly, he, you know, he had the experience. Yeah. 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 And it was funny, too, because I, for, for whatever reason, Ted likes, like, a little more space between the tracks. And I remember listening to it going, oh, my God, there's so much time in between these songs. I noticed you know, that's that That's another thing I would have done differently, right? But yeah. he's, you know, he used to say it would have been any better. Yeah, I had it on my he's phone It's weird today. at the time to hear 10 or 15 seconds or however long it is in between most of those songs. Right. And um, track two, which was, you know, I guess the, the hit single off the album, which is Smooth Up In You, I was going to tell you an anecdote. One, one of my best friends from back when this album was new, he thought you that Mark was singing Smooth Opinion. It's actually Smooth Jalapeno. Smooth Jalapeno. <laughs> I like that even better. Smooth
That's a, a chippy tune. It's funny when that came to be. I, that, I think Lonnie had the like the verse groove. You know, he just all he heard was like, and he said, "Man, there's something there. I just know it." And I thought, okay, well, let's put it together. So I kind of came up with a B section and some changes around that, and and a chorus figure. And Mark had, uh, or Mark and Lonnie, I'm not sure which one had the idea for the uh, the chorus hook. But uh, yeah, that came together in, in Lonnie's garage, and it's the first single. And it fell flat on its face. Never got any legs, never did anything. People just didn't pay any attention to it. And our record was practically over. And it, it was, for all intents and purposes, done. Because like I said earlier, we wanted to... Uh, get out on the road and one of us didn't want us to so we were sort of pushing and pulling i think our first tour was with ian hunter and mick ronson which i mean to be able to see mick ronson one last time before he passed was amazing but you know as you can imagine we're playing to all these older people and there's you know i don't know 40 60 people in these clubs we're playing so we finally get home from that and we did the video and nobody really expected anything because, like I said, you know, the first shot at the song was pretty much over. And uh, they gave us another chance. We did the video, and we go out to do these dates with Cheap Trick up north in uh, Wisconsin or something like that. And the dates with Cheap Trick are great, you know. We're still kind of bumming because it's like, holy crap, it's our record ever. You know, are we really done here? And we didn't know that there was even going to be a future. So we go to this club, and I'm sitting upstairs practicing and. I figured, great, you know, the place is huge. There's going to be 30, 40 people here, you know, another great time. And I come down to go to the stage at showtime, and the fucking place is packed. And there's lines out the block. And there's, like, no room for anybody to be in this club. And it's it's a big club. And I'm like, holy fuck, do they they think someone else is here? I mean, this is weird. And, uh, you know, so we ended up playing the gig and come to realize that that was when the video had hit, yeah. right? People had been seeing this video and flipping out. But, you know, the fact that that song almost never saw the light of day is, is kind of funny. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, the, and that really shows the power of MTV at that time. I mean, they really could make a career, couldn't they? Well, they made ours. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, if we hadn't had that video and if they hadn't played it, I don't, I mean, I guess we had a two-record deal or a three-record deal or whatever, but... Who knows what what happened? And that video got—I mean, that, I, that was heavy rotation for that video. I—I I, it was felt like it was on every hour at one point. Yeah, over I guess overnight you guys just blew up uh, mainly from that song, and you did a video without Lewis Gossett Jr. telling you to do push-ups. I was impressed. Oh, <laughs> uh, you had to—you had to get that in. Huh? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'm—I'm I'm glad that video did well because it was a freaking soul-sucking shoot. Holy crap! We went for like. 24 hours straight and I'm in those cowboy boots and so my feet were all fucked up and I just slept for like the next two days oh wow <laughs> I've never heard anything great about making videos like everybody I've talked to that's made one is just like it's a nightmare and it takes forever well you're a musician right and you play music and that's what you expect to do but now you're up there like just playing to a track with nothing plugged in and you know it's just all wrong so I mean I've hated him from the get go it's never been my thing. I've never enjoyed it. I understand the process, and I understand the needs for it. Yeah. But to me, if if you're not playing something live and it sounds like crap, but you know, so like all those old videos, like we gravitate towards Randy Rhodes and Ozzy, like doing those old gray whistle shows mm-hmm. or whatever the hell those guys did way back in the seventies. Yeah. You know, that's what I like to watch. Alice Cooper. 
suck. That's those are videos. Right. Yeah, it's better. But, better for you know, life. If I sound ungrateful, I'm sorry. No, you're just being honest. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. And also in videos, yeah. and I mean, who and who watches MTV now for music anyway these days? You know. know. Yeah. What what happened music. to them? Right. Oh, who knows? Different times. I think I saw a thing that said like MTV turns 35 this year. Let's all celebrate 15 great years of music. Yeah. That's about <laughs> like yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> All right, so um, then we go to track three, which is Ode to Joe. a few Aerosmith references in the song. Is the song about Joe Perry? Well, he's a reference in it, but um, I wrote the lyrics to that, and what I had in mind was just a general tip of the hat to everybody that came before us. You know, I mean, I I was I remember sitting at the pool at the Oakwoods, and I had to finish these lyrics because, you know, I guess we were going the next day to, to get the vocals on it or something. And uh, I just remember thinking, God, Guns N' Roses is so huge right now, and you know, does anybody even know about John Hooker? Does anybody even know about Albert King? You know what I mean? All those blues cats that I have all the box sets of, and I fucking just love them. You know, it just made me feel kind of bad because, like, here we are, all these kids on the Sunset Strip, and ask somebody who freaking Muddy Waters is, and they'll just go, what? What is, what is he playing tonight? So, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just kind of where I was coming from with that lyric. Gotcha. Yeah, I just I picked up the train kept rolling and back in the saddle. I was like, is this about Joe Perry? You know. Yeah. Well, those guys were a big influence on me. You know, I uh, I remember seeing them in Buffalo at the War Memorial Auditorium, and I was on the floor. Like I never go on the floor for concerts, right? People are throwing M80s down from the top, and it's just a freaking mayhem. But you know, it was just that's that was a rock show. I mean, I'll never forget all that. What tour would you see them on? Uh, Nazareth opened, and I'm I'm sure Uriah Heep was there. It seemed like every time I went to a concert, I had to freaking go through Uriah Heep. It was almost like a punishment. Like, holy crap, you guys are opening again! Good Lord. Wow, they're everywhere. That's funny. Yeah, they were. I swear, they were in like every show. I think they were just trying to get me. Like, holy crap! Oh my gosh. <laughs> And then we go to track four, which is Shoot the Preacher Down. If if there's any song on this album I could like hear the Van Halen comparison on, musically it would be this one. Although you're, like you said, you're solo. You're not going, you know, hammer on tap crazy either. Well, before we get into the song, I gotta, I've noticed like, and tell me if I'm wrong, is there a Jeff Beck influence in your history? Yeah, a huge one. I can hear it in some of the way you, since, some uh, of your lead playing. Yeah, since those, uh, those George Martin records really affected me in a big way. And uh, I still, every time I, I hear Because We've Ended As Lovers, I freaking start to weep hysterically. Mm. So, yeah, those those records and his stylings and, and just the things that, you know, set him apart, I was really drawn to. So, yeah, I'm busted. 
No, no, it's, <laughs> it's not a bad comparison. <laughs> oh man! But I'm yeah. just direct on uh, on the second record on uh, that Tom Waits tune we did at yeah. the very end. I mean, there's just an absolute direct ripoff. Like, yeah, you'll hear it. Yeah, it's like the, it's the baby. yeah a lot of the bending and stuff. Like I can hear a Beck influence in that. Yeah. Um, I can also yeah. I can make you weep again because I I went to a festival show in Memphis a few years ago and I saw Jeff Beck play and he was amazing like he always is. But following Jeff Beck was Limp Biscuit. Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah, pretty odd lineup. Were you? Was your yeah, right heap that, there? That's <laughs> <laughs> your right heap open. Your right heap wasn't there. The B, the the B 52s open for Jeff Beck, but. Uh, now, we actually, now, the first thing I think of is, did the guy, the guitar player, wear his skeleton suit? Because that's that's was. my favorite thing about Biscuit. Oh, yeah. He was, yeah. I don't know if it was a skeleton okay, suit, good. but he had, like, glowing eyes and all kinds. It yeah. was it was wild. Okay, good. <laughs> that's that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, but, now, see, if Jeff Beck only did that, if he only had glowing eyes or a skeleton suit or some funny hat. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's the key. <laughs> you never know. Could have been huge. So I take it if you <laughs> like that kind of stuff. For him. If you like that kind of yeah. stuff, you obviously must be a Kiss fan, then, right? I did see their Destroyer tour, but I wasn't a fan. I was, you know, the guitar player standing in the back going, oh, "I could do that." Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what all guitar players do at every show. That exactly. Do, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Like. How many guitar players that just take to stand in the back of a room and say, I can do that? Yeah, yeah, you'd fit in here in Nashville real well. Yeah, that's where you find them. <laughs> You're looking for a guitar player? Go to a show, yeah. back of the room, guys with their arms folded. There's 20 of them. Exactly. <laughs> and then, so track four, Shoot the Preacher Down. This is the one that I can hear more of the a Van Halen, kind of a hot for teacher vibe. I mean, were you guys going for that on that song or just a boogie-woogie up-tempo track? Yeah, it was just a boogie woogie thing. I mean, that's that's one of Jimmy's fortes. She uh, he did a great job on that track, and uh, we sort of put it together. You know, I mean, that was one of the things that we did. We sort of tried to play to each other's strengths, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think that was more of a sort of communal writing thing. But uh, that's a good tune. I, I like playing it. No, 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 mister, please You can't bring a bad boy to his knees Got a subtle way to say get out of town Shoot the preacher down the time you know that lyric we were worried about it or at least i was worried about it causing problems you know because it was uh, a much more innocent time even by today's standards back then so you know and i've been with king cobra where people were protesting the shows and it was kind of a tough thing to have to worry about that kind of stuff but mm. we didn't have any trouble right. it was all for naught yeah so if you get away with smooth up in you, how, how more offensive do you expect us to get? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wait a minute. If you're going to gripe about shooting a preacher, listen to this. Smooth jalapeno, man. <laughs> 
there is, you know, there's a fair share of sexual lyrics on here, but there's also a lot of stuff that's not, which of course that was kind of standard stock and trade for for the hard rock bands in was just write everything about sex. I mean, you guys got into some darker material. I mean, do you think that do you think that helped or hindered you guys? Well, I know that uh, when we got darker on the second record, people didn't like it. But yeah, I mean, I, I've read the reviews where people are, you know. And if you want to see the worldview of this band, just listen to Kissing Kitty. That'll tell you everything you need to know. But, you know, I mean, that's why, like I was saying earlier, people just make these global judgments and they hear one thing and decide the whole record and the whole band's career is that. So it's just easy, lazy journalism, you know, for the most part when that happens. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I at that time, I was in my H.P. Lovecraft days, and so I, I always was pushing for the lyrics to be a little more substantive than, than that, you know, than just pure sex all the time. Although pure sex all the time is actually a wonderful thing. <laughs> True. It's positive. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's get into uh, For the Love of Money, the OJ's cover. I mean, uh, uh, definitely a strange song to cover but you, and, and not an easy song to cover, but I, I think you guys did an awesome job on this one. Well, thank you. Well, this is uh, this is another one that Mark is, has a tendency to revise history on. He uh, he likes to claim credit for for this song when, in actuality, uh, I demoed it for him in King Cobra in my little place in Hollywood. And uh, the way I laid it out was, you know, there wasn't really a backbeat. It was just like you know, without uh, what you currently hear. But he never ended up singing on it. You know, he never was interested in doing it, in spite of what he says. So at one point during the making of the record, Ted is like, Nick, we're, we're going to need some other tunes. What? Give me a tape. Let me see what else you've got going. Standing there listening to it with him, and that tune came on. And I reached over to, like, fast-forward it because I didn't, I didn't want to hear something without a vocal. And, and he goes, whoa, 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 what is that? Let it play. And he listened to it, and he's like, oh, my God, what a great idea. Let's this is amazing. And I thought, oh, fuck, great. Now these guys are going to be pissed at me because it's going to do a song that I took and demoed a long time ago. So, and that's the kind of stuff that I had to worry about. But anyway, obviously Ted held sway over it and uh, he sort of transformed it into a, you know, a groovy kind of thing. And obviously Jimmy did a great job on it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, features Lonnie's bass and all that. And I know the <laughs> mixes were finally done. The, uh, the consensus was like, this is so great because it'll blow up people's speakers with the bass so loud. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, Holy fuck, really, guys? I remember that. <laughs> that's our crown. That's our crowning achievement. Right. Yeah, there there are guitars on it too. I'm not sure if you guys are aware. <laughs> we recorded a couple tracks. I remember. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, Tony, remember that big old sub that was in the control room, like a huge freaking speaker that was almost as tall as I was. Uh-huh. And I think they used that on a couple of kick drums. It was it was pretty wild. I wonder right. what those are now. In the recording room, right? You're talking about? Out in yeah. the studio? Yeah. yeah. We used a yeah. there was a PA that we you'd put next to the drum kit and just kind of blow the drums uh-huh. out into the room and make the room, you know, more cuz it was all an oak room. Mm-hmm. So it just it was like a beat yeah. inside of a violin. Oh wow. And it would resonate like crazy, <laughs> especially when you got it loud enough and the drums just and just Kind of like yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's one thing about the natural stuff. Yeah. 
You know, you got to think back in the 80s, we didn't have all the plugins and all the right. stuff that we have today to, for production. And it had to come from the atmosphere and from, you know, uh, in the studio where you are. So it was, you know, Jeff created and I, I, I know I helped, I remember, <laughs> um, created that huge drum sound. And that was right. what one on one was kind of known for at the time. Talking about doing a, another record and we want to get in that room. It's like, I think it's down to like 400 bucks a day now. So get out, really? You know, times have changed. Wow. Um, well, yeah. but I think I always come wanted to help know, you. Were you there? With, uh, were you there when you guys did the, the backgrounds? You know how they're, they've got kind of a reverse thing going? Yep. I would, I'd like to recreate that, man. That, that, when I first heard that on that song, the mixes, I thought, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I would have wanted to hear. You're talking about the backwards reverb? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, a, it's just a, so the vocals are, the vocals are forward. Nothing's changed there, but the reverb leading up to it is yeah. reversed. It sounds backwards. like it's reversed. Yeah. Got yeah. It. We did that with, yeah. with analog tape. You know, it's the only way to do that. Right. Record exactly. the whole thing. Which goes, with, Recorded it with a big old reverb and then flipped the tape over and played it backwards. Wow. And re recorded back into the master. That's how he would do it. Fly it. That's what was called flying it in. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, I'm glad I have both of you guys here yeah, to, to talk awesome. about this stuff because we'd never be able to figure that. Although I think you did that with Kiss on the Carnival album on a couple of things too. Yeah, with a backwards reverb yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, that's cool. Just little tricks you can, you know, you yeah. can be able to do with the analog tape that. Yeah, you can do now at the press of a button, but it doesn't have really the same effect. Right, right. You know, it's close, but no, that's way more organic than anything you can do in Pro Tools. And yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and Mick, what did what was your thoughts on this song uh, for the love of money being a single? Were you cool with that? Uh, well, uh, yeah, cool with it. I, I just wasn't, you know, I was always sort of reticent. Like I said, you know, I, this this record didn't uh, didn't exactly come out as I had heard it in my head. So I, uh, you know, I was just hopeful and optimistic, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was hoping that it, it would have been huge, although I didn't really want to be known as a cover band. You know right. what I mean? Like I, I was saying to myself, like, oh, great, this will, this thing will be the smash and we'll be known as the guys that covered the OJs. In my heart of hearts, I would have preferred that to be one of our songs, but, you know, I also wanted the record to keep going too you know i know it's got to be kind of tough you know you say like you're coming in and it's not turning out the way you imagine it but you put your faith in the team that warner brothers got together for you and go ahead with everything you're being asked to do but as a musician and as an artist and a creator yourself do you ever kind of get to the point where it's like geez you know it's totally changing the band from what it was, what I thought it was that got us here into something. Now we have to become what we're being made to create. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, It made sense because that was kind of, that's exactly what happened in King Cobra. And I didn't want to relive that. So, um, as regards bullet boys, I never did really feel that way or certainly not to the extent that I did in King Cobra. Um, so that, you know, that was kind of a relief. And uh, we certainly were more concerned with staying together and not blowing up the band, you know. But, yeah, I, I was comfortable with money coming out and, and the covers we did on uh, the next record, uh, you know, at least the Tom Waits tune. I, I felt like we sort of made that our own, and yeah. that was kind of a, a decision that wouldn't have been predictable. 
you know, and that's the kind of stuff that I'm I'm comfortable with. And and to be honest with you, going into it with uh, with Ted, you sort of have to expect that because I, I don't I don't know how many records he's done that don't have covers on them. You know, yeah, he does in terms of Van Halen and you know all that. So yeah, just kind of came with the territory. Yeah. Right. And I guess it's not like he's asking you to do Wild Thing or Magic Carpet Ride or something. You know, at least it's something pretty obscure. I mean, that was the first time I'd ever even heard that song. Like, granted, like Chris said, we were like 12 years old, but yeah, I'd never heard the OJs before, and I'd never heard that song. So to me, you know, it's always a Bullet Boy song. Well, that's cool. Because I, you know, I genuinely love the OJs, you know, and, and that's not the only song that I, you know, cherish out of their catalog. So, you know, if it helps bring then you know slightly new audience I was happy to be a part of that. back into our conversation with Mick Sweeta and Toby Wright talking about that awesome sweet debut album from the Bullet Boys. We got to take a quick break and man, you know, it's getting closer and closer and closer every single day and people are getting more and more excited. I'm talking about Rock and Pod Expo 2 coming up right here on August 25th in Nashville, Tennessee. We want everybody to be a part of it, but before we get there, We've got to make sure it happens. Right. And what we're doing right now, as you guys probably know, if you're weekly listeners, you know, you've been checking out the show for a long time, you know that every year around this time, we start 
putting out the word. We're looking for donations. We're looking for help from our friends to help us make the Rockin' Pod Expo, too. And we're not the only ones making it happen. We've got podcasts all over the country that are doing their own thing. There's different perks. You know, yeah. we had Scott on last week, and he did the Queens and Noise episode with us. Mm-hmm. You could be doing the same. Just, you know, we want you to be a part of it because we need your help. And, yeah. you know, we've talked about this. We've been doing this podcast for what over seven years now? At seven years this month. Wow! Yeah, so yeah. a lot of free entertainment we've given out over the years, and all we ask is for a little help when it comes to be this time of year, because we want to be the we want this Rock and Pod Expo to be even bigger and better than mm-hmm. last year's expo. I know it's going to be hard to top, right? But that's why we need your help, and we need it now. Yep. Don't wait around till the very end to make your donation. Help us out now. Get in on the action. We told you what it is it's uh gofundme.com slash rock in the letter in pod 2018 and that's what you got to do you go there you're going to find different ways to donate yep. different levels to donate you can come on the decibel geek podcast you can go on you know there's just go down the list you'll see all mm-hmm. the different podcasts from cobras and fire to canadian geeks canadian geeks that's really cool stuff yeah and off, yeah. and uh rock and metal combat yep. podcast and so many others are on there a lot of options a lot of different options and that you guys can go with to have fun with this and even if you if you're like well i can't afford to do a whole an episode of decibel geek or i can't afford to do an auction that we're rich and wally are doing you can i mean even if you donate as little as ten dollars you'll get access to a private facebook group that we're setting up that will have exclusive audio for at least twice a month all the way up to the expo and then you'll also get a bunch of exclusive audio that's going to be recorded at the expo so essentially you're, it's a premium podcast that 10 bucks gets it to you and it'll pretty much be filled out for the next year yeah so that's a year and of entertainment for, for, yeah for ten dollars also that ten dollars if you actually make it to the expo get you in the door Oh, nice. So you get a ticket into the expo and a year's worth of, of audio. Guys, you know, it's... So basically what you're getting is the best of all these podcasts yeah, put like, into one extra new podcast that only certain people yeah. have access to? And then, then, like, some of the podcasts have, like, you know, one of us will be on with a member of another show, and it's going to be, like, mashups of podcasts. And, and there's also going to be, we're going to do a special Decibel Geek episode that we will donate to that stream. Okay. And only people on that stream will get it. It's only 10 bucks, and that's 10 not bucks. all you get. You get all that stuff. So every podcast that's and, involved yeah, and is doing there's, this. There's thousands of of you that listen to this show every week yeah i can't stress this enough ten dollars just ten dot five ten five dollars just a few bucks guys seriously just throw it at it you won't feel guilty you you can smile every time yeah. you hear us do the hard sell on this every week and know that you did your part right and when you're enjoying all that extra content you're going to be like man this was so worth it Yeah, how cheap is that i mean how, how often do you go and buy some caramel latte mocha frappe thing at starbucks for five dollars right you drink that it just makes you fatter and then it's gone poof gone forever it's a waste of money but this is something that actually you're going to get benefit from and you're helping an event that we really believe in yes so i'm trying to give you my best newt rockney speech we believe in rock and roll we believe in podcasting we know that you do too yes so help us make rock and pod expo 2 the best that it can be whether you can come or whether you can't yeah. whether you can do the big donation and come on the show or if you just want to do five anything bucks. helps anything and everything helps so help us and get on the case and get to that site and make your donation right now and most importantly when you make that donation in the comments section mention decibel geek so we can beat Ian and <laughs> most importantly most importantly i don't want to no. be now I see what has right, become most important. <laughs> We're the home city 
I'm organizing this thing. Right, yeah. I can't come in second place. Come on. Two years in a row? Yeah, I'm not doing this two years in a row. Come on, I, we have to win. It has. It's expected. <laughs> Don't let those guys show us up. As Ian, as Ian himself says, he can't believe that they're leading because most of their listeners don't have jobs. <laughs> so help out, guys. I don't know what's going on with that. All right, before we get back to it, man, of course, you know, we, we got to give the shout out to the people that help us out every single week here at the Decibel Geek Podcast. The people that do their shopping on Amazon. But no, they don't just do their shopping on Amazon. First, they go to decibelgeek.com. Second, they click on our link. Third, they buy whatever they buy and they don't pay a penny more for it. And fourth, Amazon takes a kick of that money and sends it on over to us to help us out. It's quick, it's easy, it's simple. You're helping us for free and because we're in a hurry, they give us the list. And we get a cool list of stuff that you guys buy every week. And you guys did really good this past week. A lot of stuff was bought. Some of the notable purchases this week uh, include a soldering iron kit, an HP LaserJet monochrome printer. This, get this, a <laughs> reshow cassette player. It, it's, it looks like a Walkman, uh-huh. but it converts your cassettes to MP3. But you can also just listen to cassettes on it. Oh, wow. Course, if, I, if I had one of them, I might start buying cassettes again because you can get them for what, a nickel? Well, they're, they're like the new hipster thing to do is buy cassettes. Wow. Ask Billy Hardaway. He's buying them by the by the ton. Yeah, I gave Billy some Did a while you? back. Yeah, he's yeah. all into them now, so he's a hipster now. He's going to grow he's a, a handlebar now. mustache. <laughs> Uh, it's been a while since I seen him. You might already have it. He might. And uh, on DVD, there was somebody bought a lot of Blu-rays. Uh, Justice League, Thor Ragnarok, Star Wars Episode Eight, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Those are some pretty good Marvelous team-ups. I guess we inspired those, yeah. right? Insidious, The Last Key, Night of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah, Day classic. Of, Day of the Dead. Nice. Criterion Collection, Repo Man, Insidious Chapter 3. Close Encounters of the Third Kind on Blu-ray. Nice. Jurassic Park and Night Patrol slash The Wrong Guys. Right on. You know, that's awesome. Somebody went and did a whole bunch of movie a shopping. A lot of movie shopping. And they helped us out. Yeah, that's really great. appreciate Thank that. You. And then in music, uh, the Dead Daisies new one, Burn It Down, was bought. Sweet. Wendy O. Williams, the Wow album. That's nice. I had Vinnie Vincent autograph that one you for did. me. And he got a kick out of seeing uh-huh. it. Uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive, Not Fragile. It's one of my all-time favorite albums. Good album. Uh, Iced Earth, Framing Armageddon, Something Wicked, Volume 1. I don't think we've ever played Ar- this Iced Earth on the show. Hmm. I should have to change that sometime. Maybe he once with Ripper Owens singing, I think. Maybe. Uh, Rocky Four original motion picture soundtrack, in my opinion, the greatest soundtrack of all time. We know how you feel A about that A lot of great one. melodic rock on that soundtrack. And then uh, Enough's Enough, the Question oh. Mark and Peach Fuzz albums were purchased. Yes. Feel I knew now? it. I feel, I'm feeling better <laughs> about this every single week. That's great. All right. So that's good. Keep shopping on Amazon. Thank you. Donate to the expo. Please. And now all we ask is you enjoy the rest of the episode. Do it. So, uh, Kissing Kitty is next, and how much does the final version differ from the uh, the demo you had done for King Cobra? That was a song that I brought into King Cobra, and, and the guys didn't really care for it, so it's just kind of got put on the back burner, even though we uh, even though we recorded it. Like I said earlier, you know, Carmen at that point was, was reaching out to other writers. He, we did a couple of songs from Kiss, and it was just getting so weird. So, I just felt like I could take my songs and run 
And uh, ultimately, we ended up just sort of streamlining it from the version that I did in King Cobra. So it's just a lot sexier and a lot meaner and and, uh, much cooler, I think, on our record. song and you know one thing that we've kind of been you know has been coming up over and over again through this conversation is the rhythm section of this band you know and i obviously it takes some work to get this sound but man the bass and the drums are just unbelievably powerful on this whole album you know the whole thing has just got a a certain boom to it and this song really kicks ass at the time obviously we like i said we were a pretty new band and, and it was there was a lot of other stuff going on but that chemistry that you're talking about has sort of prevailed over everything the three of us have done, you know, and, and to this day. I mean, we're, we're in a band now called Lies to See Treachery, which mm-hmm. we'll reference later. And the three of us all get together and agree, like, we can't play like that in any other situation we've ever been in. And when the three of us get together, there is a bona fide chemistry that can't be reproduced. Like I said, I may not have been as aware of that, at, you know, in the making of that record and the maelstrom that it was, but uh, it's it's undeniable. You know, I mean, I'm not just saying this, you know, of my own accord. I've heard it from other people and I see it, you know, practically in every day on Facebook posts. So, you know, yeah, there's there's something there that is so visceral and organic and, you know, it's a shame when we're not playing together. So, you know, I'm glad we're back and I'm glad that record ended up coming out and getting the life that it did. And I love playing with those guys. Jimmy and Lonnie are uh, soulmates in every sense of the word when it comes to having something that you can't find anywhere else. I certainly haven't been able to. Awesome. Yeah, it's good stuff. It shows. And the um, and it and, and that's real evident on uh, Hell on My Heels yeah. track seven. This song is just it's just intense and. Uh, it's got a great groove to it, and the layered vocals, like the way the the vocals are produced on this this song, is really impressive. Well, thank you. Yeah, that um, that tune is it came about, I think, in, in a sort of group way. You know, there were some of those songs were just us kind of sitting in a room and hashing things out. But I remember um, that we did not have a chorus for that tune in the studio. You yeah. know, and Ted was like, "Nick, you got to go." away and you got to come back over the weekend with a chorus for this tune because it's not working the way it is and i don't even remember what it was (laughs) but i had this idea of sort of getting that dissonance you know and uh he liked it let me think how's it go you know i threw that out there as an idea for the chorus and was like yes let's go (laughs) and uh that kind of finished it up you know
it's a really cool song. And they have the the the, the chorus vo- uh, it, that the chorus is one of the strongest parts of the song. But that's so that's interesting that that kind of came last, you know, when it when it was being made. Yeah, I mean, everything else was done, and and certainly, you know, back then, Mark really could hit those notes and had those pipes. Oh know? yeah. I think he impressed a lot of singers at the time. People were were hearing what he was doing and like, holy fuck, who is this guy? You know, for so, sure. Uh-huh. It, uh, it was impressive on that level too. Well, yeah. There's times where I listen to this record and my throat hurts listening to some of the yeah. stuff he was doing. I'm just like, <laughs> God, how does he not shred his throat in half doing that? But yeah, like I've always said, I'm I'm glad he's doing it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, because it's uh, it, well, did he have to do a lot of vocal takes at the time to, to hit these to do these uh these songs? Uh, I wasn't uh, at the actual sessions, but I can tell you from my working with Mark, you know, he uh, singing like that. There's there's no way you can do more than three, you know, yeah. before you start to burn out. So, um, I would venture that if he went in with Ted and did three solid takes through. And then, you know, punch a couple of things here and there, try to think extemporaneously. Mm-hmm. And that would be it. I, you know, Mark's not that guy that's going to go in there and do different takes and they're going to come from there. He's, if he hasn't gotten it in the first three, yeah. it's, we'll try it another day. So yeah, I don't think I there was too much it. of that at all. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember it like that as well. You know, two or three mm-hmm. takes and that was it and comp them. I suppose, and he, yeah. you know, he was a do? talented singer, man. He could fix oh, yeah. pull shit out of his hat, you know. And and usually on that first take, he's going for it, you know. He he wants to get it, and uh, I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if you know the majority of that record is first take material, you know. Right. Wow. Nice. So then you go into crank me up. Uh, any particular memories of the making of this one? <laughs> the funniest story I can think of of that tune is that Ted had this crazy idea he was going to bring in. He wanted to vibe up the people at the, the label. So he brought in a bunch of people, and he's like, okay, you guys, I want you to play. You're going to play the song, and I'm going to just do some funky stuff in the, in the control room. But you guys just keep playing, right? Don't, don't fuck up. So he's got all these people. We're doing Crank Me Up. And, uh, you know, there's that one at the beginning you like the drums come in and then we stop on this it's like a c flat five with a d in it you know so i don't know c flat five two or whatever the fuck it's called i don't know i just like it i can't don't ask me to name it but we <laughs> land on that chord right and i freaking clam it he goes hey mick are you all right brother did that hurt i'm like you fucker let's just do it again just roll will you? and th- Enough with, the, enough with the cuties. Just push some freaking buttons in there, will you? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Oh, 
and that song's pretty adventurous guitar playing wise. Like you said, there's like almost some jazzy style chords you're playing in that. Well, and, and that's another tune that, like, when we demoed it, we, we did our demos with Garth Richardson, who mm. I love to death. Good, 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 Garth. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that tune again on those demos, you know, it's like doubled on each side and the leads over the top of it. It's, you know, it's even freaking crazier. So, again, you know, as I'm listening to that in the playback, it's like, holy crap, man, our demo is so much more guitar y, you know? Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, it's that's how it should have been. I mean, when you heard us live, it was much more akin to, you know, that record than anything else. So right. that, that was good. And then Badlands, this song stands out from the rest on this album. It almost has its own atmosphere to it. I mean, I really like it, but it it it, it, it almost sounds like something a completely different band would have done. What's the story with that song? Well, you should have heard the original demo that I brought because I, I – brought that song to the band and it was i mean it, it could have been a deal song you know the way i wrote it so ted just you know i guess he had that feeling too and uh, once we got in the studio he just kind of started transforming it and uh you know it felt good all the way through i mean it, it had more of a sinister edge maybe by the time we were done and and uh you know i think it, it suited the song very well ted had, had very good instincts you know he never was interested in taking any writing credit or anything like that. You know, I mean, he just liked to play with arrangements and and liked to hear things in a different way. And, you know, there's a lot of fun in that regard, you know, as as long as he was making everything better, we were all good with it. So that's an example of, of something that, uh, yeah, really kind of got transformed in the studio. You close out the album with F sharp nine. Um, how does the song get its title? Well, uh, it basically came because I couldn't think of, of anything cooler than the lyrics to name it. You know, I did. I think at the time that, that I was working on that chorus, I actually did put a nine in the chorus. I don't think it exists anymore now. It's just kind of an absolute honor.
yeah, as crappy as that story is, that's really challenging to be. But, uh, you know, I really love that lyric. I had a great time uh, writing that. And as I referenced earlier, the last line in the song, as, as we're done vamping and the, the song is crashing to an end, that lyric is what we're going by now as uh, Jimmy and Lonnie and I sort of readdress those songs from those days and playing our new band. You should be able to catch us uh, hopefully in a town near you soon and get hear all that stuff at 19 or, well, hold on, what, is, what year is it? 2018. <laughs> 2018. Yeah, yeah I'm that old. I'm still, hey, yeah, I know, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to get out there awesome. and hopefully we will pretty soon. That'd be great. Killer. So who, cool, who's man. singing for Lies, Deceit, and Treachery right now? Well, we just did a Monsters of Rock cruise with Andrew Freeman, mm -hmm. who is an amazing cat, an amazing singer. He did these songs so much justice, it was a joke. So, um, you know, we're looking forward to working with him, schedules permitting. Um, you know, we'll see how, how everything goes and how everything pans out. But again, you know, I can't emphasize enough how fun it is to play with Lonnie and Jimmy and, and uh, breathe new life into these songs. You know, we're having a great time and there's no drama and no buffoonery out there and it's just it's a whole lot of fun so mm -hmm. hopefully uh we'll get to play these tunes for you guys and you can give me your own opinion that, that would be great um, and how many of the tunes uh from this album do you play live we play them all oh, we played sure. every song on this record i think that was like you know what we set out to do and then obviously we sprinkled in some stuff from the second record as well so yeah i mean there it is that's awesome. That is cool, man. Well, man, this has been... Yeah, was a lot. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. I'm, I'm just... I love you guys so much, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, it's been a lot of fun, you know, and it's cool to revisit these albums the way we do, you know. We always pick the choice albums to do, and, you know, the... the Bullet Boys debut album, I know Chris and I both agree, you know, mm -hmm. it, it had a big impact on our lives as young fans, you know. Obviously, it's had a good impact on Toby's life because it made him feel like he was going on rock and roll vacation after what he'd been through. Fuck yeah. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully I didn't pop any balloons, you know, because I, I, when I talk, I just try to stick to the... You know, to the truth, and and hopefully there's some funny stories, and hopefully people, uh, I think people respect you know hearing things that that they might not necessarily have known, and right. you know, you, you have to hear the whole story to really uh, appreciate everything that went on back then. So, like I said, hopefully I didn't uh, bust anybody's bubble, but you know, there it is, for better or worse. Well, that's cool. Well, maybe one time down the line we could get you back on the show and just pick up where we left off here today and go on and do an Albums Unleashed with the next album. Hell yeah, man. Name it. I'm there. Awesome. I love you guys. And love I'd love to be a part of it. So oh, just uh, let me know. I'll, I'll just come and sit in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I love you, man. You more than that, man. I want Let's make another record someday. Fuck yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to grab your uh, email from Chris and uh, and we'll be in touch. Absolutely. Yeah, right on. Well, if wow. you guys get a chance, go online and see what you think of a song called Devil that I did with Lonnie and Jimmy. And, uh, you know, that's kind of kind of where we may or may not go in the future. So, Right on. Well, give, the, give them both my love. Okay, will do, brother. All right, awesome. Well, this has been great. But he cut off. Oh, right on, boys. There, well, you guys be safe out there and stay in touch. <laughs> Woo!
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 